right, everybody, it's the Yachty 84 show live here from quarantine. Several weeks into uh, us being separated from birth. Um, it is episode 149. 149 episodes there. As always, below me, <laughs> we have Adam DeMellett and his Super V. <laughs> What's up, guys? What's up, Rowdy? Ryan, how you guys doing? Yeah, we're doing good. And Ryan Glover, of course, to my right. I'm looking at the screen. Everything's backwards. To my right. Um, we have an action-packed show tonight. Uh, Ryan, would you like to give us a little teaser who will be on with us tonight? Okay, so we have an Emmy-winning filmmaker, author, and activist, and son of a civil rights icon. Okay. Who else do we have? You can you can tease all the guests. Yeah, you can, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you know, we also have a breast cancer survivor, singer, nurse, and author. We have another uh, author of four titles for children and young adults. And we also have a, um, a lawyer who is um, a retired attorney who attended school of one of the Greensboro Four and participated in the March on Washington. And personally heard Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. So Cool. We've got a lot of history, a lot of uh, talent on the show tonight. So it's going to be a good show. So if you just tune in right now, I would say stick around because it's just going to get better and better. Um, but but I want to touch on a few things right here. Um, how about Jeff Bezos' ex-wife? Have you guys seen the latest on her? I haven't heard anything about her. So they're getting divorced. Divorce went final about a month or so ago. So with the divorce, she gets 4% of Amazon, which is like, ah, 4% of Amazon. But she also got, I believe it was like $63 billion, which makes her the richest female on the planet (laughs) and the 12th richest person in the world. Damn. Wait, how can you be the richest female? Oh, richest. Oh, yeah. She's got more money than Oprah. Apparently, Wait, yes. Yeah. She got more money than Oprah with that divorce settlement with her wealth and what she, what she's a crazed yeah, ass. She's got way more. So you figure McKinsey, who actually is fifty years old, and uh, back in the day, she's like typical, like one of those women where, like, all right, so you kind of get comfortable. You get com- you get comfortable with your relationship, right? So she cut the hair short, and she kind of looked a little homely. She wasn't looking too good. But then she knew yeah. she was getting divorced, right? So they do what yeah. every woman who does is going to go back single again. She starts prettying herself up. So she's not actually bad looking. I mean, yeah, she's working out. Yeah, I'm looking at her right now. Yep. She's got she, those high cheekbones. You know, she's got uh, she's got some stuff going on for her. I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't kick her out of bed. No. For I mean, $63 billion, right. I wouldn't kick her out of bed either. I mean, I would be like, hey. For, if, she's if, average, and average is fine. Yeah. You know, she's, yeah. No, I mean, she's a, uh, she's a serviceable woman. For 50 years old, she actually looks better now at 50 than she looked at 34. Whoa, she's 50? Yeah, she looks really good yeah. then. <laughs> if you look at pictures of her from, like, you know, from, I don't know, end of 90s, early 2000s, she had the short hair. She, like, gave herself up. It's probably because, uh, oh which is, God. Jeff was probably already with his other girlfriend at the time, so there wasn't any action going on in the household, you know what I mean? Oh, I was going to see if I could share my screen with you because I found some very bad pictures of her. Damn. Oh, yeah. Short hair, kind of like. Ugh. No, long hair, but with like thick bottle glasses oh, and yeah. like, no. like buck teeth and shit. Oh, my God. Man, I, I, I think he was winning with the X. 
like I'm looking at the new girl, you know, I think he was winning. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think the, he was winning, bro. And here's the thing with the new girl, too. He shouldn't get himself so serious because now he just he already lost $63 billion, right? With an F. <laughs> which, which is nothing. But I mean, you do that enough times, it's going to put a dent in your wallet. Yeah, yeah. True. So you don't, you don't, you don't marry up at this point. Uh, Jeff, should, I keep calling him Scott. I don't know why. Jeff should just kind of live his life, and uh, you know, wear a rubber or get his. Uh, if he has no intention of any kids, just get the uh, the old tubies tied down there. Then he can just blow blindly into girls, and no one even knows. Yeah. Don't worry about getting them. It's a high price escorts. You have the best. You have enough money that like what can be afforded. Like you can afford yeah. that. That's but what I would do. Don't you want the intimacy, you know, and stuff? Everything. I think like the intimacy part of it is important. To you can pay for that. It's all an illusion. I don't, yeah. know. <laughs> Listen, you, I don't know if it's an illusion. Right. It's like. called the girlfriend-like experience. GFL <laughs> is what they post, and they give you the girlfriend-life experience. They give you. They make you feel like you're in a relationship. You know what I mean? It's not like your your ordinary 15-minute going dough. You know what I mean? But uh, if you're Jeff. No, I've experienced the the GFE, but like you know, in some <laughs> things, it's not the same as like an actual injury. like uh, love see, relationship. You yeah, know? no, you see right through their acting. Like, oh baby, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I fucking see right through it. Like, yeah, don't, yeah, you know, I'm not tipping you anymore. You know what I mean? It is what it is. You, you very negotiate on a price at this point. But uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But he even has the capability of just having like some chicks lined up. You know what I mean? Like he could just be like, you know, I got Monday's girl, Tuesday's girl. He could be blowing up the Tinder. Imagine Jeff Bezos on Tinder. What's that picture look like? Yeah. And and you know when you, know you have much money, every girl is like a girlfriend experience. That, like sure. actresses, models, like pretty oh, yeah. much. Like I'm pretty sure, like you know, he could go in any room. Every model or actress is gonna be pretending to be <laughs> oh, like you know the girl. Sure. Yeah. That's where it gets complicated though, because you don't know. A lot of these girls, do they they don't like you for you. So how do you weed out the ones that you know really do like you for you and the ones that you know just want to use you for your money? You give a fake I name. It, it just like you it has to be just worth it. Like yeah. you know what I mean where you don't care, you'll take the chance. Just, you meet somebody that awesome and stuff and everything, it's like, uh, like <laughs> I don't really care. There's two unfortunately they're all money suckers. I knew this guy like who <laughs> went to college, he wasn't like the best looking guy but like his, his family had money and we were talking one day and he was just like you know he's like you know he had this girlfriend she was pretty hot at the time like one of the hottest girls at our, our small college in illinois only had like 900 people but like you know she was probably one of the hottest girls like you know what i'm saying at her school and stuff and everything and he was like saying like i don't know if she likes me for me but like you know i don't i don't really care <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care here's there's two yeah. ways there's two ways to get around that you either a give a fake name Right, and you give a whole fake persona about you, and you meet these random like hood rat girls on the side, whatever, and have a good time, or you just have to date girls at the same caliber. I know it's it's tough to date billionaires, right. but at least millionaires at that point, you know. What I mean, people who are already established, they're not trying to, you know, they're not saying she's a gold digger, but you know, you never know. But I, I imagine that could be tough too. I mean, it's just like you gotta go with like you know, like I think like at that point, like what you like. Because like you know and stuff and everything, sometimes like the personality traits of like those those girls and stuff and everything make money. They're always busy. They don't really have time. True. If you know, a lot of them relationships aren't successful. You know, look at Halle Berry. Like you know, she's a successful actress. Obviously not billions, but millions of dollars and stuff and everything. She has all these failed marriages. True. So it's like you know what's what's causing like you know you think like every man will want to be with her, but like it's something that's not there that they're not getting in the relationship because obviously people will stay with her. And then you see like a, a fat girl, you know, like Lizzo or somebody. In oh, yeah. Things, you know, like she's with the Minnesota you know, Vikings, the whole fucking defensive yeah. line. 
Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's something for a fat girl that sucks dick and <laughs> makes cookies, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> so. That should be a t-shirt. <laughs> and Jeff Bezos, nothing to look at either with that lazy eye of his. I mean, he's, he's like a, a, a couple of years away from wearing a patch, like a pirate. <laughs> All right, so other news stuff I want to touch on. Do you guys familiar with the show Dancing with the Stars? Okay, so did you see the lineup for this year's Dancing with the Stars? Oh, I heard Carol Baskin yes. is going to be yeah. on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, who else? Uh, Nelly. Yeah, so I get the. Oh, wow. So we have yeah. uh, head coach Monica uh, Eldama from Cheer. I guess it was a TV show. Animal activist Carol Baskin from Tiger King. We have uh, Caitlin Bristow from The Bachelor. She was, I guess, oh, The Bachelor, right? Super Bowl champion Vernon Davis. TV and film actress Anne Hatch was Anne Hatch was Ellen's ex-wife, right? Anne Hatch, yeah. Then she became straight. Yeah, Disney Channel actress uh, Sky Jackson, actress Juliana, uh, no, Justina Muchado. One day at a time. Not familiar with her work. Um, <laughs> Backstreet Boys singer AJ McLean. He's the old Got one. He's like the one who was like fifty years old and. and Two years ago, he was like the senior citizen in the Backstreet Boys. I think that's Kevin. I think Kevin's. The oh, one. Kevin. I okay. Which, I forget which one AJ is. I don't a- know. AJ was the cowboy. He's the one with the goatee that used to have the cowboy hat all the time. All right, thank you. All right. Um, Emmy Award winning of the real, of the real uh, Janine Mai. Not familiar with her. TV and film oh, actor. Oh yeah, she's she's Asian, right? Like she's yeah. married to Jeezy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, TV and film actress Jesse McCap- Metcalf. I think I know who that is, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, let's see. Nelly, of course. Uh, host of Catfish, Nev Skullman. Um, former NBA star, Charles Oakley. Damn, Charles Oakley. Jesus. And uh, reality and actress, uh, Chriselle Stashus, Selling Sunset. I'm not familiar with her either. Oh, yeah, there's an Olympic figure stater. Uh, Johnny Ware as well. Uh, this is interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I, I feel like Cal- Karen Basket is probably a bad idea for her, or Carol Basket, rather, for her uh, p- potentially being prosecuted for murdering her husband. You know, you, don't, you probably don't want to put too much attention on yourself, right? Fortunately, she's I, not going to get prosecuted. That's what sucks. Yeah. No. I mean, which, I, 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 Nelly's probably ecstatic. I mean, when was the last time Nelly was relevant? I mean, that's true. he's going to come stomping in his Air Force Ones. Is he gonna... <laughs> 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 the song was so stupid. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember when? Um, who was it? Was it uh, Alex Trebek? Or there was uh, one particular guy who kept making it week after week, and it was because people kept voting him in. And he's like, "Please, I can't dance anymore. My knees are going to oh. kill me." <laughs> oh no! It was um, uh, Jerry Springer. That's who it was, I believe. Oh, yes. yes. And each week, people kept voting him to stay and stay and stay. <laughs> but uh, he was like, please, I don't want to dance anymore. I can't. <laughs> Speaking of guys who used to get hookers, do you know how he got in trouble when he was mayor of Cincinnati? He wrote a check for a hooker with a personal check. Oh, wow. He got yeah, impeached yeah, yeah. or resigned or something like that. All right. It looks like we got our first guest here waiting in the uh, green room. Uh, would you like to uh, bring him in? Oh, of course. So, um... Loki Mulholland is an Emmy-winning filmmaker, author, activist, and son of civil rights icon Joan Trumpere Mulholland. His work has received over 40 Telly Awards, and his film on race and social justice issues have won 16 Best Documentary Awards. His first book, She Stood for Freedom, was nominated for the 2017 Amelia Bloomer Award 
Loki's film, The Uncomfortable Truth, has been viewed over a half million times on Amazon, and Loki speaks all over the countries on issues of race and social justice. He is the founder and executive director of the Joan Trump Hour Mulholland Foundation, which was created to end racism through education. What's up, Loki? How are you doing tonight? Welcome to the ID84 show. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, Loki. And uh, where are you uh, joining us from today? Oh, from uh, Utah. Utah. Ooh, you're our second guest from Utah on this show in the last few weeks. Oh, who's the other one? Uh, we had uh, I Am Skippy, a reality uh, star, if you will, who is also out there living in the Salt Lake City region. So, <laughs> it's right on. You know, we go years without having any guests from Utah, and all of a sudden, in a matter of months, we have Utah. So, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, yes. You probably heard Ryan's uh, intro. Um, pretty impressive, I guess you could say. Um, so tell us a little about yourself. Uh, what, what are you doing out Utah? Are you from out there or is that just where you're kind of living now? No, no, I was born and raised in Virginia. My, uh, my wife's from Utah. I just learned that after you got married, you know, your wife tells you where you live. So mm-hmm. that's how it worked <laughs> out for me. There you go. I, yeah. I, I was almost in that situation. My wife's from, uh, Tennessee. We, uh, we almost, we, 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 we ended up living, it was, we were back up in Boston where I'm from, but, uh, it, we had many possibilities and being where she was from was one of them as well. So I understand hundred yeah. percent when that comes to negotiating, but, uh, how do you like it out there from being from Virginia, uh, Virginia and living out in uh, Utah? Yeah, well, you know, it's dry, so that <laughs> helps, but, uh, you know, we've been out here 20 years now. Oh, so wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're used but, to it by now. Yeah. But I keep threatening we're going to move back. So. Yeah. <laughs> Loki, uh, question. I was reading that you have seen every Star Wars movie yeah. in theaters with your dad. I, I yeah. saw, does that mean it got more depressing as it as it went on as they got worse? Is it, well, you know, there was there, there was that, that, that dark though. there was that dark moment, you know, and then uh, then it started to get back a little better with uh, Revenge of the Sith and stuff. But I know it's it's such a it's a trap. <laughs> it really yeah, is. It's like you go, yeah, no. and yeah, it's no, like want to go. It's it's so because you go and you're like oh this is gonna be better and then sometimes it's not and it's like oh god and then you watch a movie about tax you know tax dispute you know and then and then it gets better and then it just breaks your heart the whole Star Wars it just oh god but that's impressive that you've been managed to see them all with your dad that is awesome yeah yeah all over the yeah over the past whatever forty years yeah, yeah. It was you know there was a time when I had to I happened to be flying back to Virginia for a business meeting and then Revenge of the Sith came out and so I flew my dad out out here. Uh, for a, uh, you know, for that for his birthday, and then, then he moved to Oregon. So oh, you know, wow. ten hour drive and each way, and go see Star Wars with him. It's kind of glad to put it on hold. There's, that's a lot of Star Wars going on. There's there. a lot of Star. Did you even see the uh, <laughs> the ones in between, like the uh, Rogue oh, yeah. One and all that as well? Yeah, yeah, Rogue One and, and Solo. Yeah. yeah. So out of out of the whole collection, I guess you say, was there uh, that's eleven of them, right? Eleven films. Which which yeah. one is your favorite? Do you do you think? Oh, Empire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I uh, too. Hands down, Empire, and then probably Rogue One. Rogue One okay. is so dang good. impressive. Yeah, I, I was actually impressed by that. Yeah. One. The greatest part about Empire is it's one of the few of the Star Wars that the bad guys win, and where they leave you hanging. So it's yeah. a, you have a lot to you need to watch Jedi. Otherwise, you don't know what the hell happens yeah. after that point. Well, they leave you hanging, and you actually care. You do like yeah, yeah. I think some of the other ones they kind of leave you hanging a little bit, you know, like uh, Clone Wars and stuff. But mm-hmm. you just don't care. True. Yeah, I so. agree. Well, what would have blown me away in theaters if I saw Empire in theaters was now remember growing up, it's like we kind of already knew that that Vader was his father because, you know, in pop culture and everything out there. So it's like, I couldn't (laughs) imagine going to see it 
in a theater, not knowing what's going to happen and having that bombshell just drop. I'm sure yeah. it was like completely insane. I, I that that might have been a definitive moment in theater history if I experienced that in my life. That yeah, that, yeah, it was it was pretty dope. <laughs> we went to go see a lot of movies. I mean, that was just kind of the thing we did as kids with my dad, and he was a cinephile and such. And so we would go see all sorts of stuff. We have laser discs. Oh yeah. And uh, my dad was like this guy who uh, was a uh, military defense designer. So he would actually they, they would encrypt. They tried they did basic encryption on on VHS tapes. And he would always just break the encryption and make copies. That's awesome. Yeah, this massive library of movies and such. I've I've known so many people like that over the years. Like like you said, with the VHSs, then with DVDs when they came out. And uh, I was a big activist back in the Netflix when they first came out with the uh, the DVDs that you got. I had oh, this yeah. program where I would just rip DVDs, and I have over probably two to three thousand movies that I have collected over the years. When I was still getting the extra DVDs in the mail, and you mail them back, and you'd only be paying like eight dollars a month. But it would. It doesn't seem like I was. I was. I had so much of my library, and it was un, unbelievable. But it, but it's it's, it's kind of you know you always find as technology turns you always find ways to uh, kind of beat the system if you will. But so seeing Star Wars, you, obviously you're a movie guy, which uh, I'm assuming inspired you with your filmmaking career. Yeah, so you broke up there. What was that question? No, I was, I was saying, like, so you're obviously into movies and everything, but being a filmmaker, going to the movies and seeing movies and stuff like that, I'm sure it, it pretty much inspired you to start making movies, right? Just seeing how everything's put together and seeing on the big screen and whatnot? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there was kind of two two pivotal moments. One is Star Wars, you know, the original Star Wars. You know, we didn't we didn't have a new hope and all that sort of crap. It was mm -hmm. just Star Wars, and it was great. But uh, then my brother, he was actually failing Spanish class and uh in high school and uh my dad you know he he convinced the spanish teacher that if he made a movie in spanish that she would you know she would pass him <laughs> so he got my dad's camcorder now this is the camcorder that you would wear on your back mm -hmm. and plug in the cables and carry oh, around a massive wow. camera yeah yeah. He, yeah he made this indiana jones parody called arlington jones <laughs> and uh you know the rest of cinematic history i'm freaking well if a fool like this can make a movie anyone can yeah. Jesus, I can so, only imagine. No editing. You don't have, you have, you have everything's. You're editing as you. Oh film, no, he's right? editing. He's editing between two VCRs. Oh wow. Okay. Oh yeah. Now it's that's nuts. that's some talent. Right? That, that's I can't even imagine thinking back then. Like, I, I would I used to film on uh, VHS, like the old camcorders. I would have to make sure everything was in sequence, so like it was all led in. You know what I mean? Like you're like, all right, film yeah. this scene. You got to film this scene and stuff like that. But man. It's crazy. So, so that's, I mean, you got your roots from back then doing it the old school style. So doing it for filming and editing nowadays must be a, a breeze to you. You must love it, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's a piece of cake. Yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, yeah, when I was going to film school, I went to film school for a little bit in Ithaca College in upstate New York, and we were still editing on those flatbeds, cutting actual film. Oh, wow. So, dropping so the I film. guess that just kind of makes me sound old. Yeah. But, I always but wish yeah. I could uh, – I, I, I never actually experienced actually – you know, cutting and splicing film together um, in real life. I've, you know, you just see videos and, you know, documentaries well over that. Yeah. But I could only imagine, like, the stress because if you cut that too much the wrong way, you just screwed oh, yeah. yourself. Got to get a new print. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. And then, the, you know, the development of the film, too, was another, you know, you holding your breath and making sure the, the negatives got developed. Yeah. Because <laughs> Hope you shot it. Yeah, you want to make sure you got what you got. That's crazy. So you, you have a YouTube channel. It's uh, locked in with Loki. Uh, tell us a little about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a little project in development there. Uh, you know, it's just, um, 
know, with COVID, I was just kind of like, you know, I need to, I can't go out and shoot documentaries right now. So let me just, you know, find something else to do. And, and it's really just kind of a, a place to do three to five minute videos talking on issues of race and racism and, and stupid people and those sort of things. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I was doing a little webcam thing and now I got, you know, a little better setup with a teleprompter cause I'm, you know, I'm lazy. Um, and so with that, it's, yeah, just, just talking on, talking on points. Actually, I just did one called uh, bringing a knife to a gunfight, which was a play on words and respects to what was actually going on in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we're talking about this guy, uh, you know, Jason Blake, who gets shot seven times in the back. And it was, oh, he had a knife. Okay, he didn't. But nonetheless, but we in Utah, and I talk in the same video in Utah, there's a white guy the same day. He, uh, you know, this, this you know, police officer pulls up. This guy's sitting in front of his house with an AR-15. He starts shooting at the police officer. Doesn't get shot back, never gets shot in the back or anything. Actually gets arrested. Hmm. But all these yahoos are leaving these comments, you know, focused on just this idea of whether or not Jason Blake had, you know, a knife, right? Um, as if that's the whole point of the, you know, of the discussion. But then, you know, these people are getting out of control. There's one guy who actually commented that, you know, someone should put a gun in my mouth to silence my lies. Jesus. So, you know, I mean, my mom got hate mail too. So, you know, it's no big deal. I guess, I guess that's uh, it comes with when you have a controversial yeah. kind of, you know, idea or, you know, you're portraying something, whatever you, you know, showing something like but, that. But, you know, you got to put it out there. You got to talk yeah. about it. So. so how do you sift through it? So you just kind of, I mean, you're going to have to become a, you know, have a strong shell at some point, right? Because you're reading all the negative comedy. I mean, we've only got negative comments about this radio slash uh, live stream. So I'm used right. to getting negative stuff sent to me all the time. And, you know, when I actually get nice stuff, I'm actually very ap- apprehensive because I don't I think they're lying to me. But right. for the most it's part, you know, it's a trap. Exactly. It's like my mom. My mom's leaving something nice for me. We're going to ride that one the whole night. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, so you go through all these comments and stuff like this. And so when do you, how do you find the point to engage? Because a lot of times people want to just shoot off and just kind of, you know, defend and kind of have, you think you're having a conversation. All of us think we're having a conversation with these people, but some of these people are so hot-headed, you're never going to be able to change their you know, mind. It's kind of like politics, right? Yeah. Some, you're never going to be able to change someone's mind. It ends up just becoming a big argument. So do you engage with these people, or do you just kind of let it you go? Know, and, you know, it, it's, it's too tempting not to Yeah. at times. Um, you know, so I, I remember you know, I was uh, talking with Ruby Bridges, and she's a you know family friend, and we were talking about this. Uh, what do you, what do you do when you get messages? I was first surprised that actually actually gets hate mail yeah. every now and then. I mean, Ruby Bridges, give me a break. But I was just like, you know, really? I'm like, well, what do you what do you do? And she's like, I, you just you don't respond to that. You just don't even bother. Yeah. You don't read your press your own press clippings, and you just don't respond to that sort of stuff. Because particularly when it comes to social media and things, it's it's, it's a no. It's it's a there's no end game to it. Everyone's just trying to top everyone else and show how they shut someone down. Mm-hmm. But again, there's times I just can't resist. I had someone today who was, you know, saying that, you know, this is all just a bunch of liberal lies, that, you know, this is like white guilt and COVID guilt and American guilt and all this sort of <laughs> nonsense. I said, no, this is actually about people who actually care about other people and doing unto others as you have them do unto you, right? He goes, that's just liberal BS. And so I just replied, so you're telling me you don't believe in Jesus, okay. Oh, God, they went Jeez. down that road. <laughs> that, that's the road I went down. Yeah. These are these are hardcore right wing people, typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they try to use religion as that. You know, oh. They try to weaponize religion. Mm. Like, yeah, the Christian do. right. Yeah. Like, OK, well, you know, I'm going to throw it back at you. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
but that's that's what Jesus taught. You know, it's a love thy neighbor as thyself. If you can't handle that, then you don't belong in this game. See, yeah. See, my my tactic has always been either don't respond, but if you do, kind of like kill them with kindness because it pisses them off even more. Yeah. Like, because they want you to be as angry and amped up as they are. Yeah. yeah. So if you're not, then it just infuriates them even more, and yeah. you've won. We, you know. Well, yeah. And, and in person, it's much, much, you know, I mean, sometimes I just like, I just can't resist. I'm, I'm kind of a snarky individual to begin with, but, <laughs> um, but you're correct. You're correct. Is, 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 is you meet kind, you know, you meet, you meet them with kindness, but you really just meet people where there are. Yeah. Because if you attack someone's ignorance, they're just going to double down on stupid. We had, this, all that ever happens. we had this hater for the show, uh, well, four years ago, this, this chick, uh, Kayla, what the, Kaylee, what the hell is her name? Is I can't remember. <laughs> Kayla. Fuck it. Kayla. She did not like our show whatsoever. And back in the day, we did more of a kind of a, we were a little more comedy focused. We had a lot of comedians and stuff like that on and everything. And we were doing this contest where we were, we were trying to find like the hottest uh, girl to represent the radio show and stuff. And there were all these girls all from the colleges and stuff were sending in pitches. And it, uh, on their own, we weren't making them. They would send them in and then we'd have them on. There was a contest. We had a girl that was a model agency type person who was going to grab one of these girls. It was all... So it was all for fun, and you know, to grab some attention to people. Well, this girl did not like it very much. In fact, she used to she was going off and off and off on us. So we, uh, it was kind of comical at the point because she was so extreme with her uh, beliefs, but none of it w made sense. There was she was like one day she was extreme on this end, but another day she was extreme on this end. But it never lined it up to be anything that would make any sense to her. one of someone looking from the outside. I mean, she was banned from yeah. Facebook. She can't have a Facebook account anymore. Uh, I was willing to debate her on the air. Remember, yeah. I was like, yeah. I want to. We can debate this and have an actual civilized conversation. No one's going to get amped up. But she would take to Twitter like it was yeah. like every second. But she wouldn't say anything or talk to any of us about yeah. anything. So yeah. she she sent something that was pretty like offensive. So we posted it on her Instagram account and took a screen cap of like of like. This is what this is going on, like, and we kind of. Then she threatened us with a, a cease and desist letter that she made up from her the law firm that she allegedly worked at that we found out wasn't true at all, um, and she would just go off. So, I can understand these extreme people. In fact, uh, Adam and I like to go and visit her Twitter every once in a while to kind of just see where her where her head is in life these her days. Yeah, yeah. But that's an example of an extremist. Now she's an ex extreme leftist. Which is, yeah. you know, which is, could be just as dangerous as an extreme right. Oh, yeah. You know, so for ideas and ideolo ideologies and whatnot. But um, so we know exactly where you're coming from. But do you ever find any of the, you have anything, any of the hate or any of the stuff like that you found threatening to yourself that you maybe have to go to the authorities about? Maybe you're a little worried that something's going to show up at your yeah. doorstep? No, nah, you know, it's what, what are you going to do? I mean, it's, it's it's social media. I mean, a lot of those things you can't even track. I mean, yeah. there, there was only... There was we were doing a shoot about Emmett Till. It's a documentary that we're working on that will you know next year come out and and we had um we it's actually an interesting story you know that was probably the only time we really really felt threatened and we were in the Delta and they don't talk about Emmett Till out there mm -hmm. now, you know there are some people who do that you know but the majority of people don't want to talk about it and we we were heading for, to um, past Money Mississippi so that's the place where Emmett Till was accused of whistling at the white woman right okay. Kellen Bryant. And we're going past that over the railroad tracks down this dirt road to where there was this old tire swing. And y'all was, was this art, you know, B-roll, you know. So as we're going down this, this dirt road to get towards the money, uh, on the left side of the road, there was, on the right side, the plantation fields. And they still call them plantations in Mississippi. Okay. 
so the giant plantation fields on the left side was this little white house and these two cars and these two old African-American gentlemen out there. Hoods were up, clearly something was wrong. So we pull up, you know, is anything we can help you with? And one guy walks towards us and you would have thought we had stepped back in the 1950s. And I said, you know, is there anything we'd help you with? He goes, oh, no, sir, no, sir. I'm like, no, sir. I mean, mm. oh my gosh, what's going on here? And he's like, he's, I was like, well, you know, what do you need? And he's like, well, you know, we're trying to get the car, you know, jump. And I'm like, okay, well, we look for some jumper cables or rental. We couldn't find any, but I see this pickup truck coming down the road towards us. I said, oh, well, let's just ask this gentleman, you know, and I raised my hand to flag him down. He's like, no, that's all right. I'm like, oh crap. Yeah. You know, that's the boss man. Mm. He gets out. I mean, he's out of central casting, mm. right? Well, you know, what's the problem? Never looks at the black guys. So he only looks at us. Yeah. So what's the problem? I said, well, these gentlemen here, you know, their car, you know, we were just trying to find some jumper cables. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you know, we're heading to church. <laughs> and he's like, well, all right. He gets out. He looks over, sees one of the guys and says, no, Willie, why aren't you working for me? He said, oh, no, sir. Mr. You know, Mr. Jenkins treats me just fine, sir. And he's like, well, I'm sure he does. But you're a good worker. I want you working for me. Oh, no, no. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I mean, instantly he, he went back into that mode. Yeah. Right that safe, you know, mode, playing it up for this guy. Now he had kind of put down his guard for us. Mm. And then he got, then, then, you know, then that white boss man guy turns on, turns to us, says, you know, we get the car jumps to us. And now what are you all up to? I said, well, you know, I don't, you know, I wasn't going to lie. You know, I also wasn't going to tell him the whole story. I said, well, we're just trying to get some images of these fields, you know, some art shots and so forth. It's just kind of interesting. He goes, yeah, we've seen you around. Yeah. Now, I know I didn't seen this guy anywhere, but yeah. I knew who we was. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right. So we get our stuff in the car. We're going to head down, get down that dirt road to that tire swing, and it's dusk. Now, in Mississippi, the trees grow over the, the these little dirt roads, so it gets darker and darker and darker. Mm-hmm. We have our headlights on. It's getting that dark. you know. But the, this area is this nice little open area where the sun's coming through and the tire swing and all that. And all of a sudden, a pickup truck pulls up behind us, a different pickup truck, without their headlights on. Three good old boys in the back, teenagers. Jesus. And I turn to my camera guy. Now, I'm like, you know, 5'11". My camera guy is 6'4". And and, uh, I turned to him and said, you know, if we die, this is where it's going to happen. Jesus. Right. And one of the guys gets out. But he was the runtiest guy. I mean, he was shorter than me. He had been 5'8". You know, because these guys, they're kids. They don't quite know what to do yet. Yeah. Right. And of course, they're always sending out teenagers and stuff to go do their dirty work. Right. So this kid gets out and goes up to my camera guy who's, you know, got, again, this kid's like 5'8". This guy's 6'4". He's like, no Southern pleasantries. It's, you know, what are you doing? He says, my, my camera guy's just tired of this. He goes, we're making a movie. He's like, well, what's it about? He says, what business is it yours? I'm going, you know, look. These guys have guns in the back of their truck. <laughs> in right? the middle of nowhere, <laughs> in the middle of Mississippi. No, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's about and, baseball. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, but the kid didn't know what to do. We weren't, inti- he wasn't intimidated. Yeah. So he's kind of, you know, looked back at his buddies, looked at him and just kind of, you know, just walked away. But I was like, you know, they drove off, probably to get reinforcements. And I just turned to my camera guy. I said, get the shot as fast as you can. We got to get that, you know, we got to get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah. And the next day we were at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum talking with the curator and I told her that story and she said, you weren't wearing that shirt, were you? Which was a Black Lives Matter shirt. And I'm like, no, I don't go into the Delta with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. 
Right. She goes, yeah, that would have been the end of that one. It's, yeah. it's crazy how some of those states, I've driven to Mississippi a few times, and even if you're driving to the interstates, like you said, it's like these dark two-lane roads, and they, there's nothing for yeah. miles and miles. My wife was living in New Orleans for a period, and she was, used to drive up to Tennessee to go see her mom all the time, and she'd be driving in the middle of the night, and she'd say there's no service stations for, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles sometimes. And then yeah. when, you, when you do pull off, you don't know what kind of town you're going to get into either. You know what I mean? And it's it's hard to believe that. And I'm a northerner. We make fun of the south all the time, saying they're backwards. But it, it's true. Okay. There's a lot of we the make fun south. of the north. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of the south that's like, you know, like deep south. Not saying with Virginia, but like deep south, like Alabama, Mississippi. You know, some parts of Louisiana and stuff. Even some parts of Florida and the Panhandle and uh, oh, yeah. Georgia and all that. I mean, it is crazy. Um, I mean, I had experience when I was when I was in spring break one year. We were driving down to Florida, and uh, we stopped in uh, South Carolina. We we're at a Shoney's, you know, one of those all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet places. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, so we walk in, you know, three, you know, eighteen-year-old boys, you know, half asleep, you know, half hungover from the night before, and uh, we sit in there, and the ladies, she sits us into the back of the of the restaurant, which we didn't think much of it. We're like, oh no, okay, and it didn't really oh, click. Well, yeah, that's exactly. But it didn't really click to me until after we started sitting there that a church group came in, and it was all these black people came in, and they sat in the same section with us, so we didn't think we didn't think much of it or whatever like that. But it wasn't until we started walking out of the restaurant, we realized that everyone in the front of the restaurant was white. And then they had stuck all the church people in the back with us, and, you know, like we said, we didn't care. We didn't know what to, we, we grew up, we didn't really know one thing or another. We just kind of figured, well, what is what it is. But down there, I'm like, was, I'm like, was this intentionally? Did they intentionally do this? Or was it, I don't know, just a coincidence? I mean, it was like some bumfuck town in South Carolina somewhere. I couldn't even tell you where we were. But it was one of those towns where, like, when you travel off the interstate, like, maybe a mile, you get into, like, probably, you know, farms and stuff of that nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but it, it's, I don't know. It's it's a little crazy down there. And if I were you, I would have been, I would've been sh- fucking shitting my pants down there in Mississippi in one <laughs> yeah. of those situations. Like, I, I wouldn't know what I would do because... That shit's scary because you don't know these mentalities of people. You don't know, you know, they, they look at you, black or white, you're an outcast, you're a, you know, you know, you're a stranger to them, you know what I mean? Like, they don't know. They don't know one thing or another. They just got cable TV probably 10 years ago, so they probably haven't seen stuff going out there. You know, the internet's very limited to them, so their a, ability to expand their uh, mind is uh, somewhat limited in some parts of the, of the, of the country, but I don't know. I just... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time in uh, the Delta. Uh, like I actually used to live in uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I know like racism is like, you know, culturally ingrained, you know, like if you get arrested and you like it used to be you go to court and it'd be like a Confederate flag, like you mm-hmm. would meet in the courtroom. I think they changed their state flag, but they have like these openly, you know, racist senators like, you know, Cindy Hyde Smith. Uh, like, you know, uh, I know you do a lot of work with your foundation. What can be done to change, you know, as far as like that, that culture? Well, you know, it's, it's my mom says, you know, I can't do everything, but I can do something, you know, because doing nothing's not an option. Uh, you know, throwing your hands in the air is not going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, we, we, that's why we focus on students. Um, and my mom's story is, is unique because, you know, let's, let's face it, she's white. She's a white Southern woman which was exactly what segregation was all about, at least what, how they would frame it, right? We got to protect our sight, our, our, our white Southern women from the black beast rapist, right? That whole narrative. And so here's my mom going to Tougaloo College, the first you know, you know, white student there. They literally tried to shut down the, the, the school because you know, a white woman on a black campus with black men, well, clearly they, you know, that, nothing good can come of that. Um, 
And it, it, so it, it was, um, so, so her story is this sort of Trojan horse for a lot of teachers, because the majority of teachers are, are white women. And they're just not comfortable talking about this sort of stuff. And a lot of them are just kind of tired of talking about, oh gosh, we got to talk about Dr. King again? You know, like, well, yeah, you talk about George Washington all the time. So, you know, you, you, you can spare one day. Um, but so my mom's story allows a sort of entry point that, again, you know, we, we try to make history and, and you know, relatable. That's kind of what's going on today. Is people need to see themselves in history. It can't all be white men, right? Um, and so when it comes to the civil rights movement, seeing someone like my mom, all of a sudden white people can go, oh, wait, there were white people involved? That's something they haven't heard before. They've all heard of Dr. King and Rosa Parks, and but wow, this is new. And so now, but her story, she's this sort of Forrest Gump of civil rights. And so it allows, uh, you know, you name the you, you name the event, you name the person, she was probably there or knew them. Oh, wow. You know, uh, you know from John Lewis to you know Dr. King to Medgar Evers to you know Fannie Lou Hamer, right? Um, Stokely Carmichael, you know, it goes on and on. But so we're able to kind of introduce people to these ideas through her story. And that's what happens with the film, The Uncomfortable Truth. Same sort of, same sort of idea, this history of institutional racism in America, but told through my family's history, going all the way back to Jamestown. And then I coupled that with Lou Von Brown, who's a freedom writer, who was the first, my mom was the first white woman he ever trusted because white women get you killed in Mississippi. You know, he knew that. What was it like, you know, growing up, like, you know, like having, you know, a civil rights icon, you know, uh, like, you know, somebody who participated in the freedom rides and, you know, as far as like, you know, um, you know, was actually like, you know what I mean? And stuff and everything held like, you know, in Parchment Penitentiary on the death yeah. row. Like, you know, when you were growing up, like, you know, did you realize like, you know what I mean? And stuff like, whoa, like, this is my mom. Like, you know what I mean? And stuff, she's like this huge civil rights icon and like social justice is important. Like, when did you just start developing a concept of that? Like, you know, we, you know, we, um, we really didn't know. I mean, we knew that, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of weird things, you know, you, you see the photos and so forth. And for us, that was just mom as a teenager. I mean, literally, I mean, the, the, that famous mugshot of her, she's 19 years old, right? Um, and it's just, you know, that's just, look at the funny glasses and, you know, and whatever else. I mean, you kind of, you know, you understood that, okay, this is a sit-in, but it really just didn't register, like, what that really meant about her. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that some of these images were famous, but my mom, she never really talked about it. Uh, she, it's not like she sat us down and, you know, once a week we would talk about the civil rights movement, but we'd have civil rights people come over. But these would be college, you know, college friends and so forth from back in the day. And it's like, these are old, you know, for us old people talking about old people stuff. I mean, what, what, what kid wants to hear that? We just want, to play, with, we just want to play with the other kids. Yeah. So we get a little bit of that. And we had to sit through at least 10 minutes politely. And then, then we can go and play. So, uh, um, so sorry, I'm sorry. Go yeah, yeah. It wasn't until high school when we, when you saw that, you know, for me, at least when, uh, that, that Jackson will we're sitting. So that photo where she's at the lunch counter and they're pouring stuff on her head and so forth. And, you know, you get to high school and you see your mom in a history book, hmm. you know, the, the dots start connecting. But it's when I did the film, An Ordinary Hero, about her, her time in the movement, that even though I knew she was in the civil rights movement, you know, clearly at that point, uh, the impact she had didn't hit home until I would start calling places to get photographs or interviews. And it would be at you know the archives of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute or Smithsonian or wherever. Anytime I would talk to somebody, 
you know, it was always for Joan, anything. Right. Just, you know, and it was like, gee, you know, what the hell? Who's, you know, <laughs> what, what, why is my mom so, it's because she stayed. Yeah. It's, that's what a lot of people say is like, she came to Mississippi and she stayed. She was actually committed. She made the sacrifice. Um, so yeah. anyone who's willing to go out there and do it is making a sacrifice. But she was consistent and persistent with it. And, you know, you know, to see it through. And that was, uh, you know, was willing to put her life on the line choose the courage of her convictions so i mean that's what it was all about she was on the clan's most wanted list right, right. So, wow you know and that's you know, she, like they said you know she's she says in the film um you know megger's face got x'd off mine never did you know so that's one list you want to be on so your mom was also uh, obviously your inspiration to you know continue with the yeah. civil rights movement and whatnot what inspired your mom like what turn of events happened with her as she growing up, did she wanted to kind of help everything, kind of help the movement and, or, you know, just be an activist? Yeah. Well, you know, she's a Southerner. She says, you know, first and foremost, she, she wanted the South to be the best place it could be for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and that we weren't living up to our core principles of the declaration of independence, let alone what the Bible was saying, you know, actually John Glenn was her uh, Sunday school teacher. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Jesus. Cool. Um, <laughs> and so she just said, we, we were hypocrites. You know, we weren't living what we were preaching. And, and there was a moment, so there's a famous uh, singer, Marion Anderson, and um, who was, you know, in the 1930s or something like that. Anyway, so she's, uh, the Daughters of the Revolution don't allow her to sing in Constitution Hall. And so, you know, so Eleanor Roosevelt arranges for her to sing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and like, like 70,000 people show up and it's just mixed audience and so forth. And she's like considered like the voice you would hear once in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an anniversary concert and her, 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 my mom's uh, Yankee grandmother from Iowa, uh, who was, who was her, my mom was her only grand, was the only granddaughter of her only, of her only child, right? And she was afraid that I'm not going to let this, you know, my only grandbaby, you know, get raised by this, you know, Southern white trash. Um, mm. you know, I'm going to teach her some principles. And so it takes her to the concert when she's about 10 years old, then takes her up to meet Marian Anderson. And, you know, so, and then Marian Anderson actually autographs the, an autograph book for my mom. We, we have that in a fireproof safe today. Um, but there was those little things like that. And then when she goes to Georgia to see her grandmother down in Georgia, uh, she sees the realities in this little town called Oconee of, of what separate and equal is all about. You know, it's one thing, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you, you know, she didn't know that the N word was a bad word until she was, she was 13. Right. But she, uh, you know, and life was just kind of the way it was. But then when she goes to this, goes to this town, she goes into the black quarters, of course they called it something else, but um, she sees the schoolhouse this black schoolhouse, which is one room shack, no paint, no glass, you know, outhouse in the back, you know, full nine yards, it's, you know, like a Hollywood set. And, the, and, and that in comparison to the brand new brick building that was built for the kids, the white kids, it's still the nicest building in Oconee today, 70 years later. My mom said she just couldn't reconcile that. She said, you know, this is, and she just said, you know, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. And, and so that was about when she was about 10 years old. Wow. And she's, uh, you know. That takes some balls, too. I mean, considering the fact of the circumstances back then. I mean, to, yeah. I mean, to even befriend someone of color back then was kind of, you know, too, you know, it was uh, taboo. You know, you didn't want to do that. It was just something that no one talked about. You know, even if you like, I mean, even if you had no hatred towards people, 
uh, he just didn't speak about it because he didn't know what other people would say. So, damn. I mean, that's risky. That's risky because your mom had some balls, you know. All due respect, she was, uh, yeah. <laughs> she, she didn't care, which is good. I mean, you need that. I mean, that's the only way you can make movements go forward, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, well, fear, she says, fear, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't do anything for you, it just freezes you. And, you know, if the worst they can do is kill you, and if you believe in an afterlife, then so be it. Yeah. You no, know? that's <laughs> what you're going to do, right? <laughs> yeah. My mom's very kind of, you know, very black and white in that regards. And, you yeah. know, just, she says, you know, um, you know, she's, it's it's either uh, I forget the quote someone sent me actually I think I can pull it up right here. This great quote about my mom says it's uh, let's see I've either been blessed or cursed with excessive determination. <laughs> you know? And sometimes you know there's been situations where it's almost gotten her killed and other people killed. And, yeah. And there's a podcast episode we have about that um, on our podcast called The Wrong Time to Be Right. Nuvon Brown shares the story uh, where my mom almost got everyone killed. And, um, you know, in the Delta, driving yeah. back in the middle of the night, right? Um, and, but when you listen to that, you've realized this isn't a black and white thing. And because there's another story that Levon tells after that about Bob Moses and how he almost got everyone killed over a Coke. Wow. My mom's so. almost got the family killed by other reasons whatsoever. You know, usually her driving or her uh, yeah, outspokenness. Yeah. <laughs> <and everything>. Nothing <laughs> no. that had to do with silver rides. It was mostly more of a safety aspect that you know, yeah. you know, my mom yeah. took out the family. So, yeah. But. Real quick, I'm, I'm just curious, like going forward, um, obviously I know COVID has slowed the development process down for a lot of, you know, in, in the film industry. Yeah. But, you know, it, uh, going forward in the future, like what are you working on? I mean, I'm sure you've been doing some writing, some uh, what What would you like to do next? Yeah, so yeah, so you know, I've, you know, I've got a film that we're waiting to release about Meg Grevers and his family that we did with the Evers family. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, you know, Megger was the the first of the three civil rights activists that was assassinated, you know, in his driveway in 1963. And uh, you know, you got Medgar, you know, and Martin and Malcolm, right? Um, and so we have that one in the wings; it's already done. And then I have one, the next one on Emmett Till that we'll finish. We still have some B-roll we need to shoot. So we're waiting to go back in the spring to do that. But, you know, we're in the post-production editing process. And then I've got, um, you know, another another film we were going to shoot this spring that's that's super crazy story, but we had to put it on hold because of COVID. So we're just waiting to go back to Alabama to shoot that. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, I've got, you know, the Locked In With Loki series and the podcast stuff that we're doing as well. And, and, uh, you know, we're developing, I got a couple of book projects that we're developing. Um, so, you know, just stay, we just stay, you know, just, just stay busy, just, you know, just producing stuff and, and making the most of what, you know, what we can at the time that we have. I see that Emmy behind you. That's Show it off. That's a pretty <laughs> impressive statue you got there. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Polish that every day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I always put it there for my shoes. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I, right. I, I would be showing that thing off. I would have it uh, like hanging from my rearview mirror of my car. Yeah. I got one else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was it like receiving yeah. an Emmy? Like that must have been pretty uh I mean you're, you're... Yeah, so, yeah, well, it's an Emmy, it's pretty epic. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it, I mean it's cool. I mean it was uh it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not an Oscar. I mean, that's kind of my attitude. Put, yeah. Put but, it, it was still pretty impressive. I mean, I always like I know, any award yeah, yeah, no, of that magnitude, right? You sit there and you, all you can think is thinking to yourself, like, what do I do if I want? And then in your mind, you always have like, oh, I'm going to thank these people. You have like, a, you have something in your mind already played out. But then when you win, 
I feel like I would go up there and be like, ah, just lose. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Have a good yeah. night. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, now, now, <laughs> not, not to diminish it, it, it is a, a, a regional Emmy. Okay. Okay. Still an but Emmy. it's an Emmy. Yeah. It's actually, it's an Still official an Emmy. Emmy. They actually like have like these instructions on the back where you like, you can't do stuff to it and things like what? that. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm actually in Tennessee with my mom. Okay. And, and uh, we're speaking at University of Tennessee, and afterwards we're going to dinner. And this was earlier this spring, by about February or so. And, uh, and this guy's like, so you got to tell me, you, you, you want an Emmy? My mom goes, well, it's a regional Emmy. The guy's like, no, it's an Emmy. Mm-hmm. Goes, no, it was a regional. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, he's like, well, man, you know, I don't mean to offend, but no, an Emmy's an Emmy. Yeah, you know? so I, I agree. Like, so then the next day, we're driving, we're driving from there to the University of Tennessee, Martin. And I said, you know, Mom, why do you do that? She goes, what? I said, well, you said, you know, someone says it's an Emmy and you got to sit there and try to knock it down like, you know, like a, you know, like a regional Emmy, right? It's an Emmy. She goes, well, it's a regional Emmy. I said, yeah, okay, well. I said, Mom, you know, that, that's like, you know, you weren't like one of the real Freedom Riders because you didn't actually ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she goes, okay. Right? I'm like, oh, man, I just stepped in that one. So we, get, we get to the next location and my mom you know, we're, they're doing introductions. We're on stage and stuff. And she's doing this introduction. She goes, now I want to make sure everyone, you know, my son back over here. Cause they're all there to see her, not me. I'm just running this stuff. She goes, now, you know, my, my, my son who won an Emmy. And she, when she does that, she's looking at me, gives me a little wink, like, okay, you got it there, there. But she never says it again. She doesn't say regional anymore. She just says Emmy. And that, all right. That's like the time I was at this party and I was talking to this girl and uh, she was a finalist for the Miss Teen uh, Massachusetts contest. And I was, I was, you know, I was like, yeah, she gave me her number and everything. I was feeling high on my boat. My mother was like, you know, she was only a finalist. She didn't win this team Massachusetts. <laughs> I go, thanks, mom. You know, I got it narrowed down to 25% of the possibilities to win. But, you know, yeah, I was living my high hustle. Moms have a way of kind of bringing you right back down to earth sometimes, you know, oh, yeah. whether yeah, it's intentionally you know, or not, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, you, know I, you know, I go all over the country, you know, do, doing this sort of stuff when the cover wasn't happening and, you know. We, we, you know, we, we get fed well, you know, you know, people like, you know, listening to us and those sort of things. But, uh, you know, I still go home and clean out the care litter box. Yeah. I got to mow the lawn, still got to do these things. Hell and yeah. So like my mom is just as, you know, is as ordinary as they come, you know, and people are just like, oh my gosh, you know, and I, it's like, yeah, but she doesn't even own a cell phone. She doesn't own a microwave. You know, she still has a rotary phone in the house, you know, <laughs> just to annoy, she says just to annoy her kids when, they, when we come home. But, uh, you know, she just lives her life the way, you know, it's meant to be lived, you know, and that's just doing the right thing. So. And you said she's still in, she's in Virginia still or? Yeah. 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 Still in the same house. We grew up oh, in. Oh, wow. There so, you go. 40 years later. That's awesome. Good for her. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's, she yeah, sounds like she was uh, successful in her uh, dreams to get things going. And she passed it down to you to continue uh, the fight, which is uh, even more impressive right there. Yeah. I've got four brothers, and uh, you know, so when they figured out that I was doing it, they're like, "All right, he's got it taken care of. We don't have to worry." There you about go. <laughs> Sometimes because uh, you know, my, my name is Loki, yeah. right? My mom raised five boys as a single mother. Oh wow! But, okay. Uh, there's four years and three months that separates the oldest from the youngest. Wow. So because my my tw- I have a twin brother. Okay. But my brothers are Bino, Django, Jomo, and Geronimo. Really. Yeah. Those are some interesting Django. names. As in Django Fett? As in, yeah. It's in Django Reinhardt. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Jomo Kenyatta. Um, uh, <laughs> Bino is from, you know, he, he originated in Italy. Geronimo is from the Apache Warrior. And, and then you get Loki, you know. But, uh, but just, yeah, so it's, it's 
we're actually growing up, we were, we weren't your standard house, you know, white household in, in Northern Virginia. We actually have an autographed portrait of Jomo Kenyatta. He was the first president of Kenya, hmm. right? You know, all these different artifacts and things like that. So my mom made sure she wasn't sitting around like preaching everything to us. Um, but she just made sure that, you know, that was the world we were surrounded in that, you know, that is beyond just the standard, you know, Disney or Star Wars cookie cutter type crap. Damn. So that's, it's pretty impressive. It's a, uh, quite the story. I mean, the, I don't know. He has stories like this all the time. And uh, each time I hear him, when I'm just more, more impressed each time. It's uh, You only can make what you like what you uh, you want to do with it, right? So you can, you know, anyone can do anything they want. It's just that they just have to be motivated and seem, obviously, you're very motivated. So, um, yeah. It was great having you on tonight. This is awesome. I loved hearing the stories. Um, do you want to just plug whatever you're, you're working on on the YouTube channel real quick before we go? Yeah, yeah, I know we got the YouTube channel. I think it's just like, uh, well, my channel is like my name, so Loki Mulholland. You know, you can tell like I know all this YouTube crap, but it's uh, yeah, it's Loki Mulholland. We got that there. We got the the podcast, which is the Uncomfortable Truth podcast. Okay. Um, you know, if you go on Amazon Prime, we've got you know the movies there, the documentaries on uh, you know social justice issues and stuff. Our 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 latest one that's out is called After Summer, which is about voter suppression since the Summit of Montgomery March, and. Uh, you know, let's see what else we got going on, man. Um, oh, yeah, I see your podcast. Truth, you know, we got this, that. You know, and then our foundation website, uh, jtmfoundation.org. So Joan Trump, Howard Mulhall, and JTM. And we, you know, we exist to end racism through education. So we do that through the films and books and curriculum for students and things like that. So, yeah, we got a lot going on and just trying to continue that legacy and, and move the work forward. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, awesome. all, all you listen out there, check out Loki. Uh, check out his YouTube page, his podcast. You, I'm assuming you get the podcast on iTunes and all those nature. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so download it, check it out. Thank you again. Um, love to have you back. Uh, you know, yeah. once you get the other movie all wrapped up and everything like that, you know, that you're working on. So it'll be great. Yeah, yeah right about on. That. Sure. And uh, hopefully you don't encounter any crazy situations like you did in the last one. But, uh, you know. I guess well, that, I did not for some as well. Yeah. So I have another clan story, but we can save it so, for another time. We'll save that for next time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Logie, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Good night. All right, everybody. Loki Mulholland, right? Is that how I pronounce his last name right? Yep. You so, got it right. Oh, that's, that's impressive because, right, as you know, I butcher the English language. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Hell of a story, huh? Jesus Christ! I mean, you, those are that stuff that you, you it's like you, it's almost like mythical. You hear about, yeah, you hear these stories, but you never actually talk to someone who's actually experienced something like that before. You yeah, know? Man. sometimes you have no words. Like I have no words sometimes because I just uh, he's just talking and he's speaking what he's doing. It's like whoa, yeah. It's like what can I what can I say to this? <laughs> uh, Mississippi's a rough state. I mean, I, yeah. I've, I've only driven so. through it. It's one of the few states I've never actually spent the night in. Um, just because it's just the way I've been going, I was just driving places and I was always passing through it. And man, I just stopping for gas was a unique situation sometimes, depending on what town you stopped in. You know what I mean? You can't understand anyone, you know, uh, like, you know, I was stationed there, but I had spent like all my summers and stuff and everything. I hate Mississippi because of like, you know, the heat. You know the bugs, mm-hmm. or the mosquitoes. Is like I never want to go here. And like um, <laughs> I get, I get out of Coast Guard boot camp. And at first I got like an icebreaker in Michigan, and then they like took my icebreaker away. 
And they said, you're going to Greenville, Mississippi. I was like, I just want to go anywhere but Mississippi in my head. Like, you know what I mean? And they <laughs> said, Greenville, Mississippi. And I stayed there for uh, two years, man. And like um, on the Mississippi River, man, swimming in the river, like living in Greenville next to a grain factory. And then it was like some wow. kind of chemical factory on the other side. Wow. Like you, you imagine like the <laughs> well, so some kind of chemical yeah. factory, but you were swimming next That's what to I was where saying. that you, was. You're swimming so. in the green. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you might have a, th- you might, when you, when you become 60, you might have a third leg growing or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure like, man, it's, it was crazy. And uh, like swimming in there and, you know, going jet skiing, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the the miss it was like right after Hurricane Katrina, so we were dealing like with a lot of like the cleanup and stuff, everything from that. So mm-hmm. like you'd be on the river and like these huge trees will just be flying, like coming at your heads. Damn. It was fun times, man. That was the first time I was in Mississippi. It was the six months after Katrina? It was in March. We were driving from uh, Panama City, Florida, to New Orleans, and uh, we stopped at Gulfport and uh, um, Biloxi. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I used to live in Biloxi. That's where Biloxi. My, I met my wife, actually. Oh, okay. She, uh, yeah, we lived in uh, we lived in Biloxi for like a year, and stuff, everything like because that's where she was living. I actually met her online on Facebook, and uh, <laughs> when yeah. I went to the yeah, I went down there and we met in Biloxi, man, and uh, I just stayed, you know. So I never seen it uh, prior to Katrina, but I remember driving through after Katrina, and man, it was you could tell. It was a it was a city that like uh, at its prime was uh, was the place to go. But this just seeing the ruins, it was just so couldn't wrap my mind around it. And then that was in 2005. Uh, that was down there. 2005, yeah, 2006 rather. 2006 Katrina was 2005. Yeah, so it was March of 2006. I haven't been I haven't been there since. Um, but that's that's the nice part of Mississippi. Like I I much rather would have been stationed there and stuff. Everything to be honest and stuff. Everything like. The Delta, it's like literally nothing there. Mm. Uh, like, you know, the Gulf Coast is nice. Like, I would live there now. Like, you know, and stuff, everything. Like, it's, um, we moved and stuff, everything, because it is, like, you know, not a lot, like, going on in Mississippi. But it was a good place, like, you know, and stuff, everything. There was a, a lot of stuff to do for me. And I felt like it was a good place. I, yeah. I had fun there. Like, where it's, like, in Greenville, it just seemed like it was, like, as miserable. Like, the Delta, like, there's literally the funnest thing to do is to go to the Walmart. I remember one day, though, I went to the Walmart. I met Jerry Rice. That was, like, the coolest oh, thing. Shit. <laughs> that was it, you know? Because, like, Jerry Rice, I guess, is from Mississippi. He's, like, from that area. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but other than that, like, two years in Mississippi, like, just going to the Walmart every day, you know? <laughs> nah. Yeah, you don't want to be. You don't want the Walmart being your center. Well, I met some girl on Face and uh, yeah, Geo Cities year, years ago, and we were like, Pat, we used to talk on AOL all the time, and she was uh, Salisbury, North Carolina. She was from, and uh, we arranged to meet on my way down the spring break one year, and uh, she's like, Well, what are you gonna? We're gonna do in Salisbury. We we're only like 18, 19 years old. I'm like, I don't know. She's like, We could meet at the Walmart. I'm like, Well, I guess that's a possibility. I guess uh, we never met. Unfortunately, because her uh, baby daddy at the time intercepted the uh, phone call because it wasn't text messaging back then. It was just it was 2003. I was making a phone call and he picked up the phone. He was like, who is this? Is this some Yankee from the north? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I want nothing to do with this good old boy from North Carolina. So I'm going to keep on yeah. going on through. But Man, uh, it's very similar to a story I had in Arkansas. Like I had some similar. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> crazy down south. Yeah. Man. Damn. All right, uh, right. Looks like our next guest, H.J. Harris, is here. Do you want to give him the nice introduction? 
Yes, of course I do. So today we have A.J. Harris, who was a retired attorney who attended school with one of the Greensboro Four, participated in the March on Washington and heard Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech and lived through the turbulent civil rights area of the 1960s. He is currently available for radio and TV interviews for his new book. All right. And it looks like we have a uh, race. Crazy. Issue. <laughs> <laughs> he ran. And it looks like uh, Linda was joining us. Uh, oh, there she is right there. So we have HJ and Linda. Uh, and uh, Ryan, want to tell us about Linda real quick? Of course. Okay. So we have Linda Washington, a breast cancer survivor, singer, nurse, and author. Linda Washington knows firsthand that breast cancer is a disease that extends beyond your body, touching every facet of your life. She knows how, as a result of the disease and its consequences, a happy and bubbly person can change, become frightened, secluded, and mistrusting. Linda knows that some of the most trying times of the breast cancer fight can come after the doctors are gone, but the physical and emotional scars remain. Now she is on a mission to help breast cancer survivors in achieving whatever they deserve. Awesome. Wow. HJ and Linda. Full house. Yeah, thank you for joining us tonight on the Addy 84 show. Um, where are you guys, HJ, where are you are? Uh, uh, with us tonight, where are you? Where are you at? I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. All right. And Linda, how about yourself? Where are you tonight? I'm in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. Oh, okay. We're, we're all over the country tonight. We just, uh, HJ, we were just telling a story about uh, North Carolina, but it was uh, a spring break story. You probably had, you know, no interest <laughs> in, but uh, <laughs> it was about hanging out at a Walmart. So. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I had a spring break, but I, I don't know what it is. But I'm sure you definitely have your share of crazy stories. That's oh, for man. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff, H. So tell us a little about yourself. Well, uh, I tell you, I am a retired attorney, a recovering musician, a uh, a, a passionate author. I've written a number of books: um, How to Make Money in Music back in 1978, okay, which is, uh, uh, kind of dates me. I actually played the Apollo and uh, came up in the civil rights era. I just uh, finished speaking to a group. I was actually at the March on Washington in 1963. I was a sophomore. And I've written about eight books. Um, Solving the Race Issue in America was actually written about 10 years ago and I thought that it was really not necessary so for the last 10 years, I've been focused on more personal development and entrepreneurship. Once I retired from my law practice, I wrote a book called The 12 Universal Laws of Success. And that book has carried me around the world. We've probably sold close to a million copies, wow. nine languages. And so uh, this whole period of, um, you might say, this transformational period in the country is bringing it all together the uh, civil, the social issues, plus the metaphysical, the transformational issues, because they have to come together. Absolutely. So what was it like being in 1963, Washington, D.C., during that whole, like, what, what was that like? You're a sophomore, a sophomore in high school or college? No, I was a junior at Columbia. Okay, all right, so you're college. So you're down there. Yeah. This is the one of the biggest things that ever happened of this of this sort uh, in the country. Um what inspired you to go down there? And when we got down there, what was it like? Well, I, I tell you, I came up in the era, I actually started college in 1960. 
And one of my classmates was Jojo McNeil, who had left a year ahead of me, who was one of the Greensboro Four, okay. who sat in. So we were accustomed to the civil rights era, but being in New York at that time at Columbia, uh, at that point, there were actually only two brothers, two African-Americans in the class out of about 700. And frankly, we were scared to go. I mean, okay. the, the press had said, uh, well, first, it had never happened before that we were aware of. And they were saying anywhere from, uh, you know, a quarter of a million people to maybe a half million people. And the reports were that there was going to be trouble. And so we were really afraid, but it was one of those things that we had to go. You know, if you were if you were a brother with any kind of reputation, you had to be there. Otherwise, you had to account for yourself. Mm -hmm. So um, we went down. We actually hitched the ride. I know you young fellows probably don't know about hitchhiking, but when you actually <laughs> put your hand out and you, I found an African guy from the university who was driving down. We hitched the ride with him. Oh wow! And the I think the most amazing thing was just seeing them, how quiet it was. You know, we were so afraid that there was going to be um, violence because you remember at that time you had dogs being uh, put on people, fire hoses, people beating folks in the head with billy clubs. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something you took lightly. It wasn't like, man, let's go, let's go for spring break. Yeah, no. Washington, <laughs> Washington. It sounds like the opposite of Woodstock, essentially, what you're saying, right? I mean... Well, I was at Woodstock too. It was the same type <laughs> oh, of thing. Yeah, cool. it was. A, and, and you know, the thing, once you got there, the amazing thing was how peaceful it was. Okay. Yeah. And, and nobody was telling you what to do. It seemed like everybody knew what to do. They, people started marching. They were singing songs mm -hmm. and no violence. I think most people were like myself, just amazed at the fact that it was taking place. When the speeches took place, there were a whole uh, a bunch of speakers before Dr. King, but I, you know, there was a sound system, mm -hmm. okay? But everybody was so quiet. I mean, you could literally hear a pin drop. Wow. And when he spoke, he spoke with such authority that you really felt almost bulletproof. You know, you, you came out of there with such pride, with such hope for the future that you just knew everything was gonna be different and it was, it was all over for racism, that segregation, all that stuff would be over. And that was the feeling you got when you heard their speeches. So you get, so you get down there, you hitchhike down there. So you, there's really no end game to how you get. You just want to get down there, right? So you want to see the speech, you want to be participating in it, or whatever, whatever. And yes. uh, you know, of all of us have been to D.C. a time or two, we see that you, you're there at the, the Lincoln Memorial, the, the Washington Monument. You see the whole idea where everything's taking place. And when you're there. You, it's only it's tough to imagine, you know, unless you see in pictures or video and stuff like that, what that situation was like down there with all those people there, everyone sitting there listening. Like you said, you could hear a pin drop because it's so quiet because everyone just wants to know, you know, to hear some information, to hear inspiration, right? So you get down there, you listen. So what do you do now? So how how do you get back to New York? Do you, oh, how long are you down there for? Well, we're down there the whole day because we had to figure out how to get back. Okay, and, and, and you know the. The fellow we rode down with, I don't think we ever saw him again, but we hitched the ride back with just some miscellaneous people. It was that kind of thing. You know, wow. like, I'm sure at spring break, you, there's somebody going to the beach and you're going like, I'm going that way. Let me hop on the back of the truck yeah. and go. But one of the most amazing things was that since we really didn't have a way back, 
I stretched out on a bench in the park there, fell asleep because, you know, we'd been rolling all night and half the day and fell asleep. And when I woke up, all the trash had been removed. The people were gone. And it was as though it never happened. Wow. And and that that I didn't understand at the time. But now, 57 years later, we're still talking about the same things. Mm -hmm. So it may have been as though it never happened. That is not absolutely true because a lot of stuff has happened. There's a lot of progress that has been made. But the, the spirit of America is still in trouble. I agree. There's still there's still yeah. room for improvement to be done. Um, yeah. And I think just social media, I think you would think that social media and stuff would help certain causes. But in fact, I think it just hurts at some points because it's just allowing people that wouldn't ever have a voice or be able to speak about it. Who give them the opportunity to speak about it, which kind of is kind of kind of productive in some sorts, if you will, because it's like, you know, you're trying to push forward with one thing. When you had big speeches and marches down there, you know, you didn't have a bunch of people tweeting about you know, how bad it is or any of that thing in nature. Right? People they either went there or they didn't. And if they didn't go, they seen it on the news because there was right. only four channels that you could watch back then. So you couldn't miss it if you really wanted to. You know what I mean? Nowadays, I feel like stuff's easily missed if you really wanted to kind of avoid it and kind of just the way it is. But that's it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a story that that's a great story because uh, it's tough to it's tough to, uh, I guess, envision yourself there not you know, being there, just looking at pictures and video and then, you know, have hearing your story and whatnot. So you go, you go, you go down there, you come back up to New York, you finish uh, school, become an attorney. Uh, what kind of law did you practice? Uh, mainly entertainment and, and trial work. I, many of my clients were other lawyers. Okay. Who didn't want to try cases. Right. And then I wrote a book called How to Make Money in Music. Uh, which was like a layman's approach to uh, the business of music. At that time, there was a, the, the Bible for that era was a book called uh, This Business of Music. And, uh, but it was a book that even lawyers had difficulty reading. Were you a, so, were you a musician? Yes, okay. yes. I played guitar. I, I played the Apollo. I had a couple of one-hit wonders, you know. Nice. Yeah. When, we, when you first got on, you said you were a recovering musician. Yes. I, I oh, want to right. know yes, what yeah. that means. <laughs> <laughs> that means I'm still, I still have the bug, man. I'm still, I still play. I actually have a couple of recordings right now on iTunes. I wrote a song called The Time to Love is Here. And the difference now is I have convinced myself that I can sing. <laughs> so uh, I perform and sing the songs. And then my daughter is also a musician. So I sort of tag along and try to get in the back of her videos. You know, I'm still waiting to be discovered. Wow. I mean, so so back then, we all seen stories about musicians getting ripped off by the record companies and stuff like that. So you were trying to help them. You were trying to help these musicians try to establish themselves and not get taken advantage of. Well, you know, so many of the guys got ripped off. And that was kind of the understanding at the time, you okay. know, that, uh, you know, when you did, a, I, I managed a group called the Dixie Hummingbirds. It was a gospel group, a uh, big group, like a top group. And when we got some actual money from record sales, they were amazed. They were like, you actually got paid because <laughs> there was a kind of a quiet understanding that the record companies didn't want any of your performance money. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much won't gonna give you much of their recording money. They gave you enough money to stay around. 
Wow. They have a ride, you know, like that, that Sun Records, that, that whole uh, uh, Memphis thing. Mm -hmm. That's really the way it was. Give a guy a car, suits, a crib, and that was it. People really did not, most of the artists at the time did not participate in the real money that was being made. And I take my hat off to the rappers because I was a part of the entertainment industry when that took place. When the rappers hit the scene, the record companies wouldn't sign them. The radio stations wouldn't play their records. And traditionally, that meant you were going to be singing on the Chitlin circuit for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But the rappers took the music, what they called it at the time, street music. They went straight to the streets. And you go to, you go, they had record stores in those days. And man, people would be lined up around the block to come and see uh, uh, Flash and the Furious Five, you know. DJ Hollywood. DJ Hollywood was playing the Apollo on Wednesday nights with his scratching and the music. And I mean, to a full house, 1,500 people every Wednesday night going, hey, ho. <laughs> and so the rappers took music to an alternate route by going straight to the street. Mm -hmm. They started making the money and they saw the money and it was being made. Because think about this, the type of money the rappers are getting now is like 10 times what the guys got in the old days. Oh, uh, really, yeah. 100 times. Yeah, I believe it. But records aren't 100 times more expensive. It's always the notion that like, when you became like a musician, like the, you know, the record company would take, like you said, take care of you. They would take the majority of the money. They'd give you an advance, right? Assuming yes. that you yes. were going to make X amount of money on your sales. So they give you, you know, whatever money they give you, and you live off that. And then you have to go on tour. Now you're a workhorse, right? You're going town yeah. to town. They're working the hell out of you. And if you don't yeah. make that money that they assumed you were going to make, you start owing them money. Well, you end up owing them money because they always kept the books. Unbelievable. You know, you found out, you go like, you know, every time you went to that bathroom, mm -hmm. you used a half a roll of toilet paper, and you're going to pay for that. You, you did that taking for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> So then you fast forward through time. So, you know, the rappers start taking to the streets. They get their mixtapes and everything. They're selling it on, you know, they're, they're going, they're trying to get away from the record company. So all of a sudden we fast forward to 2006. We got MySpace, right? Where people are uh, uh, band camp, right? Yes. People start posting their music on there. And now they start getting rid of the record company and they start promoting the music uh, by themselves. Yes. So. This is an advancement. This is you're taking out the middleman. You're taking out the person that's stealing all your money for doing yep. absolutely nothing. Yeah. And well, they did. I mean, they did something. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Not worth what they were taking, though, right? I mean, right. they're not worth seventy-five percent of your income. They're, yeah. you know, they're they're an assistant. They're a uh, they're a tool, I guess you could say, right? Uh, you know, they have the connections. They can get you there, but. You know, not taking the majority of the money. That makes no sense at all. You're the you're the creator. You're making the music. Yeah. You're you're, you're yeah. performing it. You're you're working night after night, going town to town. You know, you know, getting in accommodations when you first start off. I bet you know you're in a bus. You know, with everyone in the band pulling a U-Haul behind you. You know, what I mean, it's probably not the greatest living conditions. Well, you know, that's why they call James Brown the hardest working man in show business because. He realized that on that Chitlin circuit, and I, I mean, he played everywhere. He played every night. They broke down, they performed, they hit the road the next one. They slept in the van, they slept on the bus. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way to really generate, the, you had to grind the money out. Yeah. But but once people in, in that rap era, that, that late 80s, early 90s, 
when the rappers took their their music straight to the market the record companies of course ran in front of it you know uh most of the guys today uh, uh p diddy that whole group uh master p the record companies saw it coming and they jumped in front mm-hmm. and but those guys got huge amounts of money mm. even ownership of the masters that was something that in the 60s and 70s nobody even asked for that yeah <laughs> Now, uh, uh, Linda, I know you have some experience in the music industry, too. Can you identify a lot with uh, some of what Herbert's saying? Linda? Turn your mic on. (laughs) (laughs) Can you hear me? There you go. We get you now. Yes. It's on. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. I under, yeah, I understand what he's saying. It it takes a lot. I'm new at this, so I'm learning a lot as I'm oh, going. Okay. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. But I understand what he's saying. Um, trying to get yourself out there. It's a lot of work. And it all depends on who you know, really. Mm-hmm. Do you, obviously, do you think people nowadays have a little bit easier to get themselves exposed to than they did, you know, say, even 20 years ago, you know? I think, yeah, I think it is. I think it's more, you can get more exposure now than you could back then. I mean, they're not offering you cars and clothes and suits and stuff like that back in the day. Mm-hmm. And you have to work a little bit harder, but you can you can't get through it. It can happen. It takes a lot of work and a lot of willpower. And somebody, if this is what you really want, it will work. Yeah. I agree, too, because you see all these, you, you know, you Google these new musicians coming out. You, you know, you hear someone new on the radio, and you're like, they were discovered by their Bandcamp, uh, you know, yeah. CD. And uh, we're all sitting here. We're on Zoom right now. I have a, I built a studio in my house, it, it, and it didn't really take much money to build a studio. And all you need is the software and the, and, the, and the rigmarole. And now, if you talk to someone 20 years ago, I had a band in high school back in 2000, and we used to record off a karaoke machine on and do the different tracks and then mix it on, you know, cassettes. And then we got the, uh, you know, this was before MP3s were even started to become one of those things. You know, you were saving them on wave files. They're extremely big files. And that's only, what, 20 years ago. And now kids could record an album with layered tracks and mixed on their friggin' phones. Yeah. Man, I'm watching my daughter's doing a, a soundtrack for a Tyler Perry thing. And she's done it all right out there. I'm in my studio now. She's done it right out in her section on the computer. When I heard it, I'm like, well, when did you do this? She said, this morning. <laughs> so the technology, I think, has given the artists incredible power i agree yeah absolutely exactly you kind of exactly. hold you kind of hold it in you kind of hold the uh your destiny in your hand as a young artist these days uh and i that's the thing just be ahead of the technology i think you can be okay i think uh you know it's the best advice you could probably give to a youngster who wants to do something in you know any art form for that matter just get there and be exposed you know get yourself out there in social media before uh before they shut all the instant the uh, social media down, <laughs> because it's you never know what's gonna happen. I was gonna say in the end, it all comes down to determination. And Linda, I know you obviously have a lot of it because I mean you're a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, 
And that takes a lot of determination to battle through that. Um, what stage cancer were you? I was in the stage cancer where I had to have um, a double mastectomy. Okay. And um, that that took a lot out of me, and it made me lose myself for a long time. Mm. And when I when I wrote my music, um, that gave me back myself, and to help other survivors not give up on love and believe in love again, because it's hard trying to date after breast cancer. Mm-hmm. How old and, were you? Um, go ahead. Oh, how old were you when you were diagnosed uh, with breast cancer? I was 35. 35 years old, okay. When they first tell you you got to go get a mammogram when you're 35, mm-hmm. that's when I was diagnosed. So you go in, they tell you have it. So what's going through your mind? Um, I can only imagine. I mean, it seems like it's it's... I mean, just having, you know, knowing people that go through it, um, how do you, what's your first thought in your mind once they tell you, listen, you have breast cancer? I told my doctor I didn't have breast cancer. Mm. Um, they told me, stop eating chocolate and stop um, drinking coffee and your tumor will go away. That's what they told you? A what? year went by, my tumor didn't go away. It got bigger and smaller. Yeah. Wow. And then that's when I found out. Then I then they finally sent me to a surgeon, and then that's when I found out um, I had breast cancer. That sounds like very irresponsible advice. Like yeah. just you know, stop drinking coffee. You know, you'd be fine. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense exactly. at all. Horrible. Jesus. So you go. Not in the budget. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> now what? Where? So what hospital is this? Where? Where were you at this time? In Arizona. In Arizona, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so and when I seen the surgeon, she was telling me, you know, well, Linda, she took the, all the tests and stuff, and they came back, and she said, you got breast cancer. I said, no, I don't. I said they told me stop drinking um, coffee and eating chocolate. My camp, it was gonna go away. Yeah. And she said, no, it's not going away. You got breast cancer, and it it took it it took out it took a lot out of me. It took a lot out of me. Now, just to get this kind of like perspective, what year? What year was this? This was in early, like two thousand two. So it was it was a period of time where the technology and the the the, the known uh, of how cancer grows and stuff should have been very uh, knowledgeable to most people. I would think at this point to tell you to stop drinking coffee and to stop eating. Two. That stop eating chocolate. Don't forget the chocolate. That, that makes absolutely. That to me, that's. That, that when they say get a second opinion, that's almost like <laughs> I know. You know that sounds like nineteen seventies advice or eighties <laughs> advice. I would never yeah. guess two thousand two. Jesus. So wow. you so yeah. you go in, you uh you get the surgery, uh they take out the tumor, you, you know, um and then what happens? So you go and now you're in re- remission, right? So you gotta go and, you know, check up every so technically from what I understand you're always in remission, right? You always gotta go to yeah. make sure nothing grows, right? Yeah. So yes, I- and um, in 2012, I had like 13 surgeries to fix what was done to me um, the first time. 
so wow. it, it was, it's been a roller coaster ride. It's been really been a roller. And I really, really, really hope nobody ever has to go through what I. Wow. That sounds, that sounds crazy. Like a lawsuit. Yeah. It doesn't sound like, <laughs> it sounds like some malpractice was going on right there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but to me in, you know, the early two thousands, you should have a, a wrap around your mind as a professional to know the difference between, you know, a, you know, a breast cancer or, you know, just not to eat chocolate. I never heard to, to not eat chocolate or coffee is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. And to, for a, a professional yeah, exactly. person to tell you that seems so irresponsible. And I mean, they should get their the medical license removed from them. I would think at that point. So, so, were you a nurse during this time? Well, I, did, I did go to court. I did go. I did go to court. Okay. No, I was going to school for nursing. Okay. I did go to court. I did do a thing, and the doctor got a letter of, um, he got a letter in his file for five years. Oh. So nice. if he ever does that again to anybody else, then that's when they will go after him. But it's not a known, it's not something that's published, right? So when you Google this doctor, you're not going to find this letter, right? I mean, the only way you're going to know there's a letter there is if he does this again, right? Yeah, if he does it again. So it's a slap on the wrist for being irresponsible with your uh, diagnostics, essentially, when you think about it. Exactly. Wow. And that could have been, I mean, that could have cost you life when you, when you know? Yeah, it could have. Wow. Exactly. Jesus. So, so you, you, you. To me, I just felt like my life didn't really matter back then. It was just mm. like, um, this is what's going on. You got to do this. You got to do that, you know, and, um. It was a lot, but I got through it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's uh, I don't even know what to say. I mean, that's it's awesome that you made it through. It's been, you know, you say 2013, you had those surgeries. Um, it's 2020. Seven years goes by. I'm assuming you still have a clear bill of health, right? That's. Yeah, I have a clear bill. Of, yes, I do. Good. Yeah. And you're nursing right now. So you're currently a nurse as well. Yes, I am. And w w are you working in any particular field of uh, medical, or are you kind of just, uh, you know, just a general nurse at a hospital? I don't know how nursing goes. No, I'm I, I work in a nursing home. Okay, so now you're dealing with, you know, elderly people of that yes. nature. Yes, mm-hmm. Damn. So that, I mean, that's a, so during the last six months, that's going to have been a challenging uh, roller coaster ride by itself. Yeah. Yes, but, I mean, you know, if you love what you do, it's it's, it's good. Have you, uh, at the facility that you worked at, did you have any um, or a lot of people who were affected by corona, or were you one of the lucky ones? Yeah. Really, yeah. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yeah. And they, they're they slowly trying to get back to some kind of normal. Mm -hmm. um, right now, because of this pandemic, but um, it's a it's a work in progress. It is, yeah. I think uh, I would like to think the lights at the end of the tunnel that we're almost through all this uh, craziness, but uh, you only we'll only know that once we're there, I guess. You know, what I mean, we can't really predict the yeah. future on this, you know. Damn. So this is a this is a couple of stories right there, Adam uh, Ryan. Do you have uh, anything to? To add, or... yeah, I, I think one of the most beautiful things about your story is that you went through the tragedy and you you use that that pain and stuff everything to create a book, 
and you know uh, the beautiful song uh, "Missing You." How did you uh, find the light on the other side? You know to get through that darkness. You know what I? You know I would think the cancer was bad going through the cancer, but after trying to date, I think was even worse. Mm-hmm. Because when somebody hears, oh my, you know, you're a breast cancer survivor, it's like, oh my God, you're a breast cancer survivor? And it's like, you got to play. Mm-hmm. And let me just say, I got a lot of male friends because they come back and say, oh, you know, well, we can just be friends. I'm just like, oh my God, is this what I got to really deal with? And that's what made me write my book, um, Forbidden and Broken, Finding Love Behind the Scars. Because I don't want any other woman to go through what I went through. And I want them to realize that they're beautiful inside and out. And to be accepted for who they are, not what they went through. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you. I feel that the the generation these days are a little more on the stand. I think, again, cancer is more of a... I don't want to say a, a known thing for people these days. I mean, um, I mean, I think we've all known someone in our lives who's, uh, you know, who's either had it or died from it or survived it or whatnot. Um, but 20 years ago was still, I, I hate to say a new theory or a new thing, but it, 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 it the, the technology and the developments weren't there. And I feel, I, I like to think that the, the developments are a lot further along nowadays and the detection's a lot, you know, better than it was and people have a better understanding of how life is and the whole process of to, to, you know the chemotherapy did you go through chemo i'm assuming or radiation yes, I did. so i mean it's, my i had a grandmother who yeah. died of uh ovarian cancer and the chemotherapy and stuff like that just the process to watch and this was in the late 90s um was pretty advanced and uh you know as a young kid i was only 11 years old to see you know your grandmother to go through this stuff it really makes you grow up real quick to understand of uh you know how precious life is and uh and it's great to see that this has been such an advancement in uh you know cancer research and whatnot to uh find this early to have more survivors to be able to uh pinpoint the situation not have a asshole doctor tell you that you just have to eat less chocolate or coffee which is i will i it's unbelievable but I mean, that's amazing. And so you're inspired to write a book. And you know what? I think sometimes it takes something monumental in your life to help you, you know, to do something like that, to write a book, to maybe to someone who reads it to be inspired by it as well, you know? And I think that's the whole reason we do any kind of work like that is to inspire someone later on who may be going through a rough time or not sure what's going on to kind of take that all in and kind of give them the little boost that they need to move on, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it's it's basically like when you get a certain age, you know, you always do your um your own checkup, make sure that you do your own breast examination. That's how I found mine. Mm-hmm. And um always no a woman should always know her body. Mm-hmm. And if your body's not right, then you need to go get it checked. And I think everybody should know their own body. Absolutely. Regular checkups. Go to the doctor. Get your physical. Know what's what's the deal. If you're feeling a little ill, and I know it's worse with men, you know, when we, you know when we're sick, we see we we tend to kind of, you know, play it off like we'll be fine. We'll be all right. It'll be fine. Don't we'll go ass it. on. It, it's not real. Yeah. And that's 
Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> yeah. thing. I don't know what it is, and I, it's all men are like that. You know, like a woman's sick, and she's like, oh, "I'll go to the doctor's." You know, I get sick. I'll I'll sleep it. I'll I'll sleep it off. I'll be all right. And you just don't know. And sometimes you just gotta go. And and I don't know what it is about men. I don't know if it's just like, you know, we feel like yeah, we could fight through anything, or that we. I I, I don't know. It, it, but in reality, we probably should go. You know, especially the older we get, the more we probably should go, you know, more than. Exactly. Start trying to act like macho and just go to the doctors. Yeah. Just, just do well, it. I think, you know what I think part of it is, already. I think it's because when we're little, like we're told, like, you know, just, you know, if it's not, I was always raised that if it's not heart or head, you're fine. Mm-hmm. And to a little kid, that's probably true because you're being a little kid, you're running around and being stupid. But yeah. When you get older, there's obviously other things you have to be more aware oh, of. But because you have it instilled in your head, eh, if it's not that, I'm fine, then that's probably why we don't go. <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my wife gets on me all the time, you know, like, my, you know, something's hurting on me. She's like, you probably should go to the doctor. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll sleep it off. And like, it's fine. I'm 36. But, you know, at 46, that pain or uncomfortableness could be something where and you were 30 yeah, no, you were, yeah now and Linda, true, you were 35 yeah. so i mean you were in the same age span that you know ryan and uh adam and i are at right now so i mean if we if we played that game and said no we'd be fine we'd probably be dead if we didn't go and go further you know so exactly Jeez. exactly man uh it just reminds me of this weekend and stuff everything you saw that chadwick boseman you know uh, passed away of colon cancer mm. and stuff yeah. i thought uh, you know, that was just like, you know, a, a horrible tragedy. He was such a great actor, so young, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, cancer doesn't have, a, they don't discriminate on race or uh, age. It's, uh, if it's going to get you, it's going to get you, I guess. You know, it's an unfortunate uh, thing in society that I think, as of many things, is getting better with uh, being able to uh, cure it or to, you know, prevent it, I guess. I would hope so, you know. I'll tell you, fellas, I'm 76. And when I was 36, I was just stupid. Okay. (laughs) I thought I was bulletproof, Mm -hmm. bazooka proof, machete proof. But I think once you hit around 50, a whole different perspective happens. Now, number one, you'll find once you pass 50, friends that you used to know who used to talk a lot of stuff mm-hmm. many of them fall by the wayside mm. you're like hmm maybe i better pay attention okay and then you around 50 somewhere between 50 and 60 you often have a health scare yourself and at that point you make a decision say you know what let me check out my diet because so much of what happens in us literally my friend Dick gregory worked together for years and he said you dig your grave with your fork Mm. and so so much of what happens in us depends on what we put into our bodies what we eat and when we look at so much of the processed foods and if you read the pack on most of the foods you eat you're like man i don't think i'm gonna eat this Mm. oh absolutely yeah yeah so i think it's something that happens as you get older and you see things happen around you. But yeah. at, at 36, even 40, 45, I was still stupid. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't worry about nothing. But after you have a couple of scares, you go like, hmm, let me pay attention to my body. Become very attentive. And 
even I have a good friend that has breast cancer, a man, you know, we didn't, and you know, for a man to deal with breast cancer, I mean, he, I think he really waited much too late, you mm. know, just not believing that it was possible or, or, or for a man. But uh, as you said, Linda, you, you become very attentive to your body and to the signs. Yep. And then you act exactly. accordingly. Some people hear it and don't ignore it, but you hear and you act. Yeah. Amen. I guess the best way to say it right there. Well, H.J. Linda, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, H.J., real quick, do you want to plug, uh, do a last-minute plug or anything? Yeah, man. I, the uh, Our book, uh, Solving the Race Issue in America, right. and it's really designed for young people like you all because so many of you don't know the history. You know, mm-hmm. we, we see what's going on right now, and, you know, sometimes there's so much of a, 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 a you might say, a diversion on a lot of things going on. You know, we, people see the injustice and then they see the riots and you know sometimes it's almost like you know a, a man has been shot in the stomach and then people get all upset because he's bleeding on the on, on the white carpet you know mm-hmm. so you know it's a matter the book was designed it's called solving the race issue in america it's on amazon on uh, uh, kindle and paperback but the purpose of the book is to give people three points. One is a brief history of race relations and racism in America, a quick overview of what has happened in the past, the, the courts, the laws, the politicians, how uh, people have a- attempted to resolve the issue. And then third, that we have to take a spiritual approach mm. where we actually look at the idea of acknowledging you know, what it, what it is uh, basically asking forgiveness for whatever it is and then make an atonement in a sense that if I have wronged you, if the system has wronged you, if the government has wronged whoever it is, that if we at least apologize and go forth and figure out a way to make everybody whole, to make, to make everybody be able to go forth and uh, really live out the creed of our country. You know, I mean, as they said, to make a more perfect union. It ain't perfect, mm. but if we work together, we can make it more perfect. And it will continue to evolve. There you go. And Linda, last minute, what are you plugging? Or how can we get your uh, your book? You can get my book, Forbidden and Broken, Finding Love Behind the Scars, on Amazon.com. And my book is about um, finding love after breast cancer. Um, the ups and downs one have to go through. Like when I wanted to start dating, I was physically be- mentally and verbally abused, was told I wasn't a real woman anymore, so I needed to get used to being treated like that. Mm. And I don't want any other woman to go through what I went through. Um, It's a lot that you have to to take and endure. When somebody here, you got breast cancer, but you got to be strong and you have to have that thick skin. And that's what um, my book is about. And my single, Missing You, is about missing yourself and believing in yourself and not what you went through. And that's what I want every breast cancer survivor to know, that you're beautiful inside and out, and your breast does not make you. And you have to be 
You got to love yourself from inside before anybody else can love you. Great. AJ, Linda, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, thank you. It's awesome talking to you. Everyone out there, check out their stuff because it's, uh, if you listen to this episode, then you, you, I would feel obligated to go out there and continue this journey. So thank you guys again. It was awesome talking to you guys. Uh, Brian, Adam, anything last minute before we go? Uh, no. No, that about sums it up. Check out thepacky.com. And uh, if you're into movies, check out The Whirlwind Potato on YouTube. All right, Ryan. Hey, yeah, check out uh, you know the packy. All right, everyone, thank you so much for watching tonight. It was a pleasure, and we'll see you guys next week. Have a good week. Thanks, Bye, guys. Nice meeting you.